This is The Guardian. I don't know how my mama walked her trouble down. I don't know how my daddy stood his ground. I don't know how my people survived slavery. But we're standing here today because they believed. So this land right here, I would say we have to do some type of homage song, Ross, because it's so sacred. Can you imagine what they thought? They didn't even know what to think. It's like, I'm not going to see my husband again. I'm not going to see my children. I can't fathom that. Like, you're never going to see them again? It's like, even being here, my heart, like, just full, you know? Trying to imagine. So you got to do some song on this land to make it kind of heal itself. Hey, na, 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 na. Hey, na, hey, na, na, hey, na, na, hey, na. I'm standing outside an overgrown lot by a highway on the edge of the port city of Savannah, Georgia. It was here in 1859 that the largest sale of enslaved African people in U.S. history took place. The sale became known as the Weeping Time. Pierce Butler and his brother... They come down to Georgia, and they have wealth, and they buy two plantations. One was the Hampton Plantation, and one was Butler Plantation, and it's like an island. Like, all of these plantations are in sea islands, you know? The sea islands. These islands run along the southeast coast of America, from the Carolinas down through Georgia to Florida. For hundreds of years, cotton was cultivated by enslaved Africans across these southern states and on these islands. Cotton that was then loaded onto ships and sailed across the ocean to Manchester. Cotton that was supplied to The Guardian's founding editor, John Edward Taylor. So it's uh, there with us. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, and so you just have to call them, say yes. their names. That's why I love when Ross says that. Yeah, yeah, when we lay the chant. Yeah. I'm here in Georgia with Sister Pat Gunn and Sister Roz Rouse. They're local storytellers, historians, and activists from the Gullah Geechee community. Direct descendants of African people who were enslaved on the Sea Islands. They are telling me about why the two men called the Butler Brothers organized the Weeping Time Sale. They, uh have a gambling problem, one brother does. He comes to the other and says, you know, if we want to keep these two plantations, I got to pay those folks their money, so we got to bid in and get some of these people sold. The auction that Pat is describing was so big, the Butler brothers rented out what was then the Tenbrook horse racing track. All of this area, the actual auction happened on that train depot. As they're getting out, they have an auction block over there. They won't allow us to come in. A reporter was there on site in 1859 and wrote about what happened. It was Mortimer Thompson. He was a reporter for the New York Tribune. He came, he was a white man, came here undercover. Yeah, so he wrote, children grabbed their mother's dresses. The women wore gray turbans. One woman carried a string of blue and yellow beads. I thought that was an important detail to show the connection to Africa. They ate and slept on the bare boards. 
their food being rice and beans with occasionally a bit of bacon and cornbread. Their huge bundles were scattered over the floor and therein the slaves sat or reclined when not restlessly moving about or gathering into sorrowful groups discussing the chances of their future fate. On their faces was carved grief. Some stared vacantly, others rocked back and forth. The enslaved people wailed at the race course for a week while preparations for the sale of humans was underway. The string of colored beads one woman held feels like a small mark of defiance. They connected her to a civilization far older than the United States and one that would outlive its dehumanizing system of enslavement. Speculators came early to examine the humans in bondage. The prospective buyers slid their hands up and down the bodies of the men and women and children looking for bruises. They pushed back their heads, opened their mouths, checking their teeth. They, They pinched their skin for muscles and walked them up and down to detect any signs of weakness. Finally, they were lined up in the grandstand of the race course for final sales. You had established families, mother and father, husband, wife, team, children, cousins, uncles, whole family systems didn't matter. Whoever wanted to buy them, they were just selling them all. They said it was a two-day sale, March 2nd and 3rd, 1859, and they said it was torrential rain for two days. They said, we think God is weeping, the heavens are opening, and this two-day rain is God weeping. So that's why they call it the weeping time. In the rain. Can you imagine? In the rain. I can't imagine. In the rain. I went through and I found the names of some of the men, women, and children who were sold here. They were listed in that original article that was published. So Dorcas, who was 17, picked Sea Island Cotton. She sold for $1,200. Cassander, 35, also picked cotton but was prone to fits. She sold for $400. The same prices were paid for Emmeline, who was 19, who was described as a prime young woman. Cotton hand, yes. And Judy, who was 11 and billed for what she picked, cotton. They sold for $400. Hager, 50, a cotton hand. Silas, 13, cotton, prime boy. I wanted to start the story by saying their names. names. Saying their their names. names. My name is Deneen Brown, and I'm a journalist. For more than three decades now, I've written about my people, descendants of enslaved Africans and their struggle for justice. That reporting has taken me to Ferguson and the anti-racism protest of the Black Lives Matter movement to Charleston and the murders of church members at the hands of an avowed white supremacist, and to Tulsa for an investigation into the 1921 race massacre. This series is looking at the ways in which The Guardian was built on the wealth from the proceeds of transatlantic enslavement. It has brought me to the Sea Islands, where enslaved Africans were forced to pick cotton. Many of the descendants of those once enslaved still live on these islands today. 
It's a community fighting to keep its culture alive. From The Guardian, you're listening to Cotton Capital, Episode 3, The Sea Islands. Before we travel to the Sea Islands, I want to tell you a story of an African-American abolitionist. She crossed the ocean on behalf of her people to make sure that Britain did not forget the suffering of those producing the cotton that was arriving in Manchester. These words have been written by author Serpa Salinius and are spoken by Rachel Hanshaw. Several months before the Weeping Time auction, on the 29th of December, 1858, a woman called Sarah Parker Ramond boarded the Liverpool-bound ocean steamer Arabia in Boston. She was 32 and traveling alone as an abolitionist, representing the millions of African descendants in the United States. Ramond was from Salem, Massachusetts, born into a family of freedom fighters, all of them free-born, all of them women's rights advocates and abolitionists. Following the path other abolitionists like Frederick Douglass had taken, Ramond was headed to Britain to speak to audiences about enslavement. Conflict between the Unionist North and the Confederate South was intensifying, and she knew it was critical to secure the support of England. Despite passing the entrance exam and being one of the best students, because Ramond was black, she had been expelled from her school. This injustice she experienced as a child was something she would never forget. She would grow up to lift her voice against injustice in America and its cruel system of racism, segregation, and enslavement. As Ramond left America, she wrote, The fearful crisis must come one day. Though it was two years away, like many Americans, she knew a civil war was inevitable. Ramond was a hugely talented orator, known for speaking passionately, without notes. At the close of her lectures, and frequently throughout them, She was rapturously cheered and applauded. In the words of the papers, the sensation was great wherever she went. Although bound for Liverpool, there was another city she knew she needed to reach. Manchester. Why there? Because while the UK was the number one destination for American cotton, Manchester and its factories were the beating heart of the British textiles industry. Crossing the ocean at that time was dangerous. Shipwrecks were not uncommon. But she wrote, I do not fear the wind nor the waves, but I know that no matter how I go, the spirit of prejudice will meet me. And since black people in America had not yet been recognized as full citizens, when Vermont sailed, she carried a substitute passport containing a brief description of what she looked like. It said she was five feet and a half inches, with a high forehead, dark hair, black eyes, a full mouth. After the dangerous 10-day ocean crossing, 
she landed in the busy port of Liverpool on Sunday, the 9th of January, 1859. Almost 30 years had passed since the abolition of direct British enslavement. But while the British may no longer have been formally owning enslaved Africans, much of the economy was still running on enslaved labor. Grown on American plantations, cotton was shipped across the sea to Liverpool and transported along the canal into the waiting teeth of Manchester's sleepless machines. British machines and the hands working on them were producing 40% of the world's cotton goods. One in six British jobs involved cotton, and eight out of ten bags of cotton coming into the UK were grown and picked in America. Ramond had her work cut out for her. In certain places, there was real resistance to change. But as she traveled the country giving lectures, London, Bristol, Warrington, she felt embraced as a black woman. Other women acknowledged her as a sister, and when presented with a watch, she was so taken by surprise that her words were prevented by her emotions. I have been removed from the degradation which overhangs all persons of my complexion. I have received the sympathy I never was offered before. And then, on Wednesday the 14th of September, amid the teeming streets, roaring train lines, and towering warehouses of Victorian Manchester, an audience in top hats and wide bell-shaped dresses crammed the Manchester Athenaeum to hear Ramond speak. Hundreds were said to have been unable to gain admission to the grand stone building in the heart of the city. The mayor introduced Ramond, who stepped onto the platform. She noted how glad she was to see young people in the audience. She knew it was vital that they should hear what she had to say. Ramond spoke of the profits made from the cotton that supplied Manchester. Not one cent of that money ever reaches the hands of the laborers, she said. She even mentioned the enslaver Pierce Butler and the cruel sale of the more than 400 enslaved Africans at the weeping time. And she continued, We have states where, I am ashamed to say, men and women are reared like cattle for the market. The whole power of the country is in the hands of the slaveholders. You find the poison running through everything. In her talks, she brought up the sexual abuse of enslaved women in a system with no legal protection, and of the 800,000 children of mixed origin. This was a topic others avoided. She appealed to women in the audience, saying that women are the worst victims of the slave power. I do not ask your political interference in any way, she said but requested the audience to raise the moral public opinion until its voice reaches the American shores. At the Manchester meeting, a resolution to support American abolitionists was passed unanimously. The meeting ended late in the evening. Sarah Parker Ramond was written about as one of the best female lecturers in Britain. Her compelling speeches were covered by newspapers in England, Ireland, Scotland, and the United States. But 
There is no mention of them in the Manchester Guardian. One hundred and sixty-four years later, producer Courtney and I are riding an early morning ferry. We're heading to an island called Sapelo, off the coast of the state of Georgia. At the peak of the plantation system, 800 enslaved Africans were living on Sapelo, forced to grow cash crops. Beyond cotton, they harvested rice, indigo, sugarcane, and tobacco. So did the exercise work? Maurice Bailey, a native of Sapelo Island, the ninth generation here on Sapelo. Maurice Bailey is tall with a gray beard, and as he just said, has a long family history on Sapelo. Love the nature, as you experience. It's quiet. You can hear the birds. You can see all the stars. Beautiful beaches, beautiful rivers. And a lot of people that come to Sapelo have any kind of spiritual connection, especially African-American people, when they come to Sapple, they feel something. When they go to that beach and look over the Atlantic Ocean, they feel something. So this is a special place to a lot of people. During the time of enslavement, Sapelo was considered a remote island isolated from the mainland. So the plantation owner entrusted the running of the plantation to a man called Bilali Muhammad, who they called the slave driver. He was an enslaved person just like everybody else. He had a task system, so people, once they'd done that task for the day, they didn't have to do anything else. So they was able to have that freedom of time to for their family. Uh, he kept the families together, time for religion. Balali Muhammad was also an Islamic scholar. A 13-page document that he wrote on Islamic law is believed to be the first Islamic text written in the United States. Maurice Bailey is a descendant of Balali Muhammad and grew up following several Islamic practices without realizing their origin. When we pray, we pray to the east. We bury by with their feet towards the east. When they rise from the day, they rise facing to the east. So these are some of the practices that, that we was doing. And we didn't know that we had these Muslim background until someone came over and told us about it. On Sapelo and along the coast, a culture developed that weaved together West African traditions with the developing culture of enslaved Africans on the Sea Islands. Well, it was a big family atmosphere. Everybody went there by the house. Everybody shared everything. We didn't know it was a, another world out there. We did find another world out there. We didn't like the other world out there. But it was ground practices in the community. As Maurice grew up, he lived in a culture now known as Gullah Geechee. The origins of the term are debated, but the Gullah are said to have lived in the Carolinas, with the Geechee living farther south in Georgia and Florida. African as can be, all these people, I could just see it. 
their faces and their speech and their way of life. Dr. Emery Campbell is a Gullah Geechee elder. He's 81, with a face framed by a bristly mustache. Over the course of his life, he has investigated the history of his people, who are believed to have come from Senegal, the Gambia, and Sierra Leone in West Africa, and Angola farther south. Those enslaved Africans were trafficked to America because of their skills in cultivating rice and cotton. We know that we like rice, <laughs> and, and we don't hardly eat without it. I got a pot of rice in there right now. We know that, at least in Sierra Leone, they don't eat unless they eat rice. These displaced Africans from different parts of the continent created a distinct culture on the islands. They created new foodways with meals like red rice and okra stews, sometimes combined with leftovers, including pig's feet, chitlins, hog maws, and fat back from the enslavers' hunts. They made food using grits and cornbread adapted from the Native Americans. It created a distinct Gullah cuisine. The Geechee language spoken was derived from a blend of African languages and English. And my maternal grandmother, our speech was almost entirely African. On a chillin', on a chillin', come on, get your vittle. Children, come get your food. With drums banned by enslavers, out of fear that the drums would be used to send signals of resistance, they created songs of resistance. Galagichi music, most famously the spiritual Kumbaya, or Come By Here, My Lord, was born out of a culture of call and response worship and used in ring shout performances. The great writer James Baldwin once said that to be African-American is to be African without any memory and American without any privilege. This is what makes the Gullah Geechee so unique. Through their isolation and determination, they never lost their relationship to Africa. I think it's pure isolation. They taught them in their own African way of life. But Maurice Bailey told me that they suffered when confronted with white society. We don't speak a lot of Geechee anymore because we was beaten if we did spoke Geechee. Uh, so in schools, you got pot put in the corner, you got pinched. You literally didn't get jobs. Uh, you didn't get loans. You didn't get anything if you spoke Geechee. So people had to change the way they spoke just to be accepted. And that bothered a lot of people. Before we left, Maurice drove us around the island and pointed out some of the crops being grown. Yeah. And this is one of the several sugarcane fields, so we'll be hopping the sugarcane in two weeks. Yeah, we got a lot more sugarcane fields around the community. So, so two weeks we'll be harvested, fourth week in November, December, we're making syrup. Y'all still growing cotton? No, we don't want to go back to that. <laughs> yeah, we still mad. Cotton did that too. Man. 
The cotton many enslaved Africans were forced to pick became known as Sea Island cotton, and its high-quality fibers were much sought after by the British textile industry. That included Guardian founding editor John Edward Taylor, who co-owned a cotton trading firm called Shuttleworth Taylor and Company. Dr. Cassandra Gupta, who led the research into the Guardian's links to transatlantic enslavement, discovered that Taylor's business had been agents for W.G. and J. Strutt. The Strutts have been described as one of England's largest cotton thread producers. They sourced their raw cotton from a number of places, including the southern United States. Cassie knew that this cotton would have been picked by enslaved people. It's usually difficult to pinpoint the exact enslaver and plantations the cotton has come from, and even harder to identify any of the people enslaved there. But one day Cassie came across an incredible find. It was a little book full of names and logos. It turned out to be one of Strutt's invoice books dated 1822 to 1825. So when I did like a Google search, I realized that all of these names listed in this book were coming up as enslavers in the Sea Islands in the southern part of the U.S. I looked through the book and I saw Shuttleworth Taylor and Company listed as one of the firms. And it repeated about maybe three times or four times relating to various enslavers. I was surprised to find that level of information on Shuttleworth Taylor and Company. Sea Island cotton, because it's so premium and high quality, how you have like wine being branded, like the reputation of the wine might go along with who is growing it or the plantation and stuff. That's how the Sea Island cotton was. So that's why it was so clear about who the Sea Island cotton belonged to, because variations of it would differ according to who was growing it because they have secret strains and stuff like this that they were doing. And so it was basically branding. And that actually helped us (laughs) to pinpoint where the cotton was coming from or who was selling it and who were the enslaved people. It's because it was well recorded in that invoice book. An invoice from April 1823 shows that Taylor's company was supplied with 12 bags of cotton from an enslaver called W.E. Baynard. Baynard owned a number of plantations, including one called Spanish Wells on Hilton Head Island off the coast of South Carolina. It was extraordinary to be able to link the Guardian to one of the islands. Courtney and I decided to travel there next. Hello? Can I ask you a question? Hilton Head, in contrast to Sapelo, is nowadays covered in luxury resorts and golf courses. We drove to a place called Spanish Wells Club, a private, members-only establishment. It describes itself as one of Hilton Head's most exclusive communities and has a starting fee of $3,000. We thought it might have been the site of the former plantation because the club's website refers to it as Spanish Wells Plantation, but there's no mention of enslavement. We wanted to have a tour and discuss the history, but we didn't get a reply when we contacted the club. So we drove as far as we could, arriving at a gate saying Spanish Wells Club, 
stop private community. Can I go around this way or have to back up? Go around. Okay, thank you. Bye -bye. This felt like a very different experience from when Maya and Courtney found the former site of Success Plantation in Jamaica. There, the ruins of the plantation had been abandoned, left to the bush, with no sign of the wealth it had once generated. Here, it felt like a form of erasure. The eradication of people's histories, their stories, is not an accident. Records of those who were enslaved were not common. But Cassie did find some. A year after the Civil War erupted, there were records of 62 enslaved people who had been living on the Spanish Wells plantation. I discussed this with Courtney. We know that Union forces came to the Sea Islands we know that many of the plantation owners abandoned their plantations when they heard word that Union forces were coming. They also left the enslaved Africans behind, like in a hurry. And the records show that some of the enslaved people from Spanish Wells Plantation showed up at one of the forts that was confiscated by the Union forces. These Formerly enslaved people were listed as contraband. That means that they were to have been confiscated by Union forces from Confederate plantation owners. And one of the things that um, I've learned on my trip here from Gullah Geechee elders is that it's important to say the names of some of these people. They often, in my journey here, You'll hear people say, say their names, meaning say the names of the ancestors, say the names of the people who worked this land, who lived here so long ago. And so I wanted to say some of their names. And again, these, these names were listed in records as having come from Spanish Wells Plantation. There's Cuffy, there's Bob, there's Abram, Billy, Isaac, Will, Robert, February, John, Andrew, Prophet, Napoleon, Titus, and Monday. The U.S. Civil War broke out in April 1861. Although government policy in Britain was to stay out of the war, the country was divided. Perhaps because of its cotton connections, the Manchester Guardian refused to back the North. But elsewhere, there was support. On New Year's Eve 1862, at a packed meeting in Manchester's Free Trade Hall, 
workers decided to support the blockade against the South. As a result of the blockade, 60% of the spinning and weaving machines in the Northwest came to a grinding halt. In what became known as the Lancashire Cotton Famine, half a million factory workers and their families endured grueling hunger and unemployment for over a year. It was a remarkable act of solidarity, one Abraham Lincoln himself called sublime Christian heroism. The war finally ended in April 1865, but after Lincoln was assassinated less than a week later, emancipation for most of the almost two million enslaved Africans also meant betrayal. The promise of 40 acres and a mule that had been made to the enslaved during the war was torn up. Much of the land they had toiled on was returned to former enslavers This act was ordered by new President Andrew Johnson to shore up support for his administration. On the Sea Islands, however, in places like Hilton Head, things were a little different. When enslavement ended, many saw the isolated, mosquito-covered Sea Islands as useless, opening up opportunities for the formerly enslaved to purchase plots of land. While the majority of Hilton Head did remain in the hands of white landlords, they were absent, only visiting when the climate was agreeable to them. They only came beginning about November until about the spring of April or May. They'd come with their hunting parties, shooting birds. That was their recreation. But we had free roaming of the entire island. As the 19th century rolled into the 20th, the island was full of small, self-sustaining communities. Dr. Campbell has lived in the same one his whole life. We were the only ones on these islands, the descendants of Africans, for nearly a century until the island began to change. Preserving the Gullah Geechee culture has increasingly come under threat. That change began in the 1950s when those absent landlords sold their land to logging companies. When the timber people began cutting those pines, you could hear that saw going through each one of those pieces. That means you could you could hear the sound of that saw all day not knowing that these sawmill people were going to change this island. And then eventually there's the ferry boat. And so, by our house, they begin paving roads, and then we see cars coming every weekend. Eventually, a bridge was constructed, linking this once isolated island to the South Carolina coast. And then they said they're going to dedicate the bridge and the governor is going to come. So we 12-year-olds walked those two miles down to watch the people in the dedication ceremony for the bridge. But you watch from afar all these white people, well-dressed, 
with the program to dedicate the bridge to Hilton Head. That was the change, big change. And the first time I, f I really faced separation of races, we were coming from Sea Pines, right where we left the day, and that was in my high school days. We were coming back from caddying on the golf course. The sheriff stopped us and asked us what we're doing down there. And nobody never questioned me being anywhere on this island before then. And that's when I realized that there was certain places that black people didn't belong on this island for the first time in my life. It was symbolic, it was what happening throughout the country that I had not, had not experienced before. Driving around Hilton Head, the impact of development knocks you back. Big highways now shuttle thousands of tourists between beachfront resorts and sprawling golf courses. Many Gullah Geechee residents are fighting to hold on to their land in the face of ever-growing demand from wealthy outsiders. First of all, the land value increased because now it's more desirable by more people. In the midst of that, you've got descendants of slaves. One way that many in the Gullah Geechee community say they are losing their land is through local governments raising property taxes. Sometimes when the Gullah resident cannot pay these taxes, their property may be sold to pay them. Under an oak tree, we spoke to a Gullah man who said he used to pay $250 a year in taxes. Now it's 5000 so Dr. Campbell and others in the Gullah Geechee community are working hard to overturn the local tax rate increases in Hilton Head. Dr. Campbell believes that loss of land isn't just about the loss of physical space. It's also about a loss of connection to the ancestors. Barge tons and tons of pines out of here. That's why this place is called, this particular place is called Sea Pines. Big pine trees. We drove through a resort called Sea Pines on the southeast corner of the island. After a guard led us through the front gate, we made our way through a maze of resort homes. At the end of the road, close to the shoreline and surrounded on all sides by condos, was a cemetery with clay headstones. All our cemeteries are located near water, with the belief that your spirit would move back across the water to Africa. This one is a little different. So you see the building there, that big building, and that, that's the, I think that's the ninth hole in the green. The cemetery, we believe, went all the way to that waterfront. And then this guy built this big building right to block 
the spirit from moving through the water, really. So the cemetery is now contained within this, oh, maybe half acre spot. So he built his building on top of On uh, top of cemetery. grave sites. At that time, he made headstones and put it in if, if you could afford to. If you couldn't afford a headstone, you put a stick there until you could afford one. And uh, so it was very easy for a developer to come and build on a cemetery. I'm looking for my great-grandmother's grave. Looking for Susan Williams. She's right there. Right there? Okay. Born in 1861. Was born the, in 1861, right as the Civil War started. Just as it started. Kind of a sad memory. On, on how much they have, how much they contributed to the wealth that have eventually ended up looking like this. We were incensed when this building got here because we didn't know people would be building this close to a graveyard. Mm. Our tradition and our cultures always shown respect for cemetery, and you just didn't do anything near a cemetery. But with this, this culture shows us and has shown us that, you know, cemetery is just another place. Nothing sacred about it. It's really um, something else to drive through this luxury resort community and come upon a cemetery. And steadily building. Yeah. Just look at this continuously. This was nothing but woods. What do you think all of this says about the way money works in America? <laughs> well, it's, it points out exclusion. Exclusion of knowledge about another culture. Uh, the fact that we had to come through a gate. Exclusion of certain people. This, this is one of the most exclusive resorts in America. How do you feel when you drive up to that gate and then you have to say, I'm going to the cemetery? Oh, it's much better than it used to be. <laughs> At five or ten dollars that it was bef before we could get in there free, it was, it was a hindrance to us. And so we had, we had to really sensitize the owners and and the guests as to why it was important for us to visit these graves. But you get, you get more encouraged. You've been doing it a long time. When the man at the gate say, you know, oh, come right ahead, here's a pass. And then you, you feel a little bit, it's, oh my goodness, 20 years of work paid off. What does it do to you when you're always fighting to preserve your people, your place? Your culture, your language, your land. Tiring. Tiring. It's, it's quite a burden.
There is resistance to the development and to what the Gullah Geechee see as an attempted exclusion of their community. One place that is helping people stay on their land lies in the neighboring St. Helena Island. There you can find the Penn Center, a historic Gullah Geechee institution. Dr. Campbell was the director there for almost 30 years. But the struggle for land is not only happening in the Sea Islands. Back in Savannah, Sister Pat Gunn is standing on the former site of the Weeping Time auction. It has been fenced off. The city wants to use part of the land to build a shelter for the homeless. You know, all of this, they put the, the uh, fencing up, that's the city here and all of this, but even that, they just donated an, an acre of this, we could have some commemoration. All of those are opportunities to heal. And they should have visitors coming from around the world to tell this story so it won't happen again. The city has said an archaeological study has established that the area Sister Pat is referring to was not a part of the Weeping Time auction, which is why permission was granted. Some people say, oh, Sister Pat, Sister Rod, y'all need to forget about slavery. It's the 21st century now. And I'm saying we carry our ancestors with us in terms of the pain they endured. And until we are able to acknowledge that pain and what they did to us, it's not going to heal. It's not carrying the pain and saying we're going to live it forever. But every place we turn, there are memories of that. So if you don't want to talk about slavery, then we won't talk about slavery. Can we talk about George Floyd? Beneath the Spanish moss that hangs from the cypress trees here, amid the seagrass and black waterways that stretch like veins across this land, lies the story of wealth generated by Sea Island cotton. That cotton was picked by enslaved Africans. It was backbreaking labor. The enslaved toiled from can't see morning to can't see evening, sun up to sundown. Many of these enslaved Africans and their descendants never benefited from the wealth they generated in the factories and textile mills across the ocean in Manchester. Today, that number is worth more than a billion dollars. The Galagichi have told me the time has come for institutions to make amends. The descendants want repair for the historical harm. I have tried to give a voice to the ancestors who could not speak out against what they endured. It's almost as if I can hear them now, over the waves, saying, speak it loud, tell our stories, try to get us a little justice. You are listening to Episode 3 of Cotton Capital. New episodes are released every Monday. In the next episode, the podcast heads to Nigeria and Brazil. To read and watch all of the journalism from the series, please go to theguardian.com. 
cotton-capital. This is The Guardian.